You're listening to Black Neon Digital Podcast, episode 15, Brooke Roberts Islam. It's science and sustainability together. Welcome to Black Neon Digital Podcasts. I'm your host, Jodie Mita Hamilton, and I believe the future of fashion is to honour craftsmanship whilst embracing innovation and to support each other to build businesses that have integrity. The entrepreneurs and visionaries who we speak to are using fashion as a way to create change, finding new ways of working towards a more ethical, sustainable and connected fashion industry. Digital knitwear designer, diagnostic radiographer within the NHS, material scientist producing biodegradable materials, co-director of Brooke Roberts Innovation Agency, fashion tech writer for the Huffington Post, the Hospital Club's 100 list of most influential and innovative creatives in the UK. It's hard to believe that this list of titles and achievements could belong to one person. However, it can only belong to one person, and that's Brooke Roberts Islam. Nice to see you, Brooke. We finally got to um, get this in the diary, and I'm really happy about that because I've been following you for quite a few years now. Um, all your various career elements, shall we say, mm-hmm. and your journey. So um, I'd just like to go back to the beginning uh, or from where I sort of picked up on, on your journey, which was um, the knitwear, the knitwear designer and your radiography. So could you just sort of take us through that for us? Sure. So um, I, I was working in the NHS as a radiographer um, when I moved to the UK uh, I'm originally from Australia, uh, and I was really looking for a more creative career. Um, I've always been very interested in um, making things. Um, I grew up on a farm um, in in rural Australia, um, a wool farm actually. Um, Hence so the knitwear, perhaps. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, but my mother always made a lot of clothes, and you know, I was kind of around that sort of thing when I moved to London I I worked as a radiographer and then I decided to go back to university and study fashion so I studied at London College of Fashion and Central St Martins with the plan of becoming a tailor actually uh, because I felt the aspects of fashion that interested me the most were the technical ones Uh, I really wanted to understand how to make clothes um, in a sort of formal way uh, and in a in a rigorous way uh so tailoring was what appealed to me and after studying I I sort of through my tutor at St Martin's drifted into working with a knitwear designer who was really focused on trying to create tailored knitwear so I sort of took on the technical aspects of delivering that and because it was so technical I was based in a factory in Italy trying to realize this quite unusual combination of a knitted stretch soft textile having to do something quite uh, structured so that was where my knitwear journey began and that was in around 2005 and I spent several years working with that designer and and learning a lot about being in factories and trying to realize ideas in a in a sort of formal factory environment in a in a very realistic Um, industry-based way and the tensions that exist between trying to be immensely creative and also create a viable and commercial product 
Um, so it was an incredible experience. And it, it led me on to wondering what I was going to do next. Uh, and I had a lot of ideas about the fashion industry by then, sort of three years in, um, having worked with this designer at London and Paris Fashion Week and sort of understanding how new gen works and and how emerging designers start to sell and, and what goes into sort of producing a collection for Fashion Week and, and the shows. And I had this really firm idea that there were so many designers and there were so many um, brands, emerging brands, that if I was going to do something myself, it had to be for a really good reason. It, it needed to have a, a strong point of view. Uh, and I was, I was doing part-time radiography, actually, while I was working with this designer at, at one stage. And um, I say part-time, I was sort of working crazy hours with her and crazy hours in the hospital. But um, I was doing a brain scan and I, I was sort of thinking about this idea of human anatomy and the digital aspect of the knitwear I was working on, you know, making the fabrics. And I started to wonder whether or not my scientific um, background and my sort of passion for medical imaging and, and curiosity still around it could marry somehow with digital knitting. And then I just came up with sort of this sort of idea for an experiment really to try and use digital medical images as the basis for digitally knitted textiles. I mean, there's a sort of like a, a medium crossover there. Um, and that sort of made me really excited about the potential of presenting uh, knitwear in a new, very, very modern, um, sort of scientifically informed way. And, and obviously with all your background, with the tailoring and the factory and everything, it, yeah. Yeah. Fed into that. Exactly. I felt, I suppose, in the back of my mind at that time, I knew that I would be able to, you know, with a fair amount of negotiation and convincing, um, you know, I, I felt I would be able to at least launch some sort of experiment with, with the factory in Italy. Mm. Um, so that was in around 2009. Um, so I, I sort of, I proposed that to them and I began learning how to um, to prepare um, files for digital knitting because it's not something I could afford to pay them to do. I mean, the amount of R&D and time and it just wasn't feasible financially. So I had to learn those skills myself. I had to sort of convince them to let me take up some space in the factory for for some months to, um, to, to experiment really. Um, and they kindly, you know, supported me to do that. So Did that they was, think you were a bit bonkers <laughs> at the time? Completely, yeah. completely. I mean, for anyone who's ever worked in commercial fashion with factories in Italy, there's a very strong sense of of what fashion is. Um, and and tradition and how, how things are. Absolutely, yeah. and craft and sort of notion of aesthetics and, and finish and luxury yarns. And, and I really wasn't interested in any of that, but... I still have an, a really strong passion for um, the idea of presenting um, very high concept, very beautifully designed clothes. It's just my, my inspiration is, is definitely not coming from seasonal palettes or, mm. you know, Renaissance art or although, you know, I, I do have an interest in those other cultural areas, it doesn't excite me in the same mm. way that, that MRI and CT brain scans do, for example. 
So it was just proposing something totally different to them. But if you're having this kind of discussion with the right people um, who are passionate about what they do and proud of of their skills and, and their ability to knit in this case, then it's possible to engage them in, mm-hmm. in something that's then a journey of them learning something and discovering, new. Yeah, discovering for themselves. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and there's a, a point at which I think they they either believe in you or they don't. Um, and we went on to work together for, for many years and I worked as a knitwear consultant for other brands and obviously worked within that factory um, with them um, for those brands as well. Mm. So... So it you brought them business as well. It was a two-way yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was sort of an evolving mm. relationship. And um, so that's the way that it went for me in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But it was a very difficult start. I, I think it was around a year or so after I launched. Um, so I presented a collection at London Fashion Week. And I remember being actually quite quite scared about the response that I was going to get. And there were quite a few journalists that were really quite... Um, sort of um, disgusted by the idea um, of of brain scans being used as the basis for textile design. What was their rationale for that? It was just, I think, more a case of that sort of inspiration doesn't necessarily belong in in beautiful fashion. Mm. You know, that's, a, that's not a nice visual picture to link up to a beautifully knitted garment. And, I mean, at that stage I was sort of talking to Browns and then I the... The collection was stopped there, so there were there was definitely an aspect of the story not needing to be told in order for people to like the product. But I felt that it was it was important to to have that discussion to differentiate it. Um, and then I, you know, from there, I guess it sparked an interest in the idea of technology and fashion, science and fashion. And I I I was a speaker at TED Med quite soon after that about mm-hmm. how science and technology can inform and and inspire fashion and mm-hmm. other creative um pursuits so it sort of started i guess to gather mm. momentum after 2010 or thereabouts and as we know now fashion tech is yeah it's huge it's no. huge yeah it's <laughs> well maybe we think it is in our world but yeah. well maybe we <laughs> maybe we do no there's a definite sort of recognition of the importance mm. of technical textiles yeah. of 3D virtual mm. design replacing um, physical prototyping. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a whole. I mean, there's a whole yeah. I guess there. for for also um, cost savings as well as sure. like I don't know something new, something tech, something inspiring. You know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons people look at tech to create something, isn't there? Many, um, yeah. And also you you're you do a lot of work in the textile innovation area mm. as well. Yeah. Um, with your chemists sort of backgrounds and, and mm. can you just describe a little bit about that? Sure. So um, my background is in uh, so I've I've done a science degree which was focused actually mostly on physics um, and um, electromagnetic radiation, obviously, because uh, you know, because of my radiography um, specialism. So, chemistry is something that's n- it's not something I've studied in depth um, academically, but it's something that I've taken on um, as a sort of consequence of working with a multitude of different fibers in yarns um, and trying to understand the properties of those fibers 
and then also the consequence of those fibres in terms of recycling and sustainability. So I've become very involved in in working on making yarns and fibres perform better uh, and understanding how to recycle them. Uh, and that's as part of a number of different projects that we do at BRIA, which is the innovation agency I co-direct now, um, which is an extension of my work as a knitwear designer and consultant. Um, and so what we do is we work a lot on, for example, conductive yarns for the use of data capture so we can learn things about the body. Uh, but we also do developments on the chemical dissolution mm. of textiles, so dissolving textiles down at end of life and then trying to recover either the fibres or the material in a semi-intact form and transforming it into some other kind of material. Which, as I saw, is it Sabina or Sabina? Yes. Yeah, that, that brand's yes. beautiful as well. Sabina, so, yes. Yeah, so I was kind of quite interested to hear a little bit more about what you're doing for them because I kind of... You know, it looks quite commercial and, mm. and, you know, beautiful. So it doesn't necessarily match with the textile innovation edge because when mm. we sort of think about innovation, it tends to be with designers who are mega into that, you know. Mm. And the two, I just, yeah, I thought it was quite an interesting thing. Yeah, it's the way that the that collaboration came about was through a, a BRIA uh, application to, to the EU for funding. So... My co-director Moyne and I had this this idea around trying to take post-consumer garment waste and recover the fibres in some way or transform the materials in some way to extend their life so that they didn't need to go into landfill. So we proposed this to Sabina, a, a joint um, collaboration, because with the way that the project's funded by the EU... There's a, a strong push for technologists and designers and scientists to work with artists and designers mm. to come up with solutions to some of our huge environmental problems. And Sabina is a great designer. She's got a great commercial mm. brand, um, incredibly brilliant businesswoman um, who Moyne and I really admire. She's done some really experimental tech work as well in terms of present, presenting and selling her collections digitally. So we were really keen to try and maybe, you know, work mm. with her to develop a capsule collection together that would um, allow she and I to design sort of in wovens mm. and in knits in our specialist areas. But at the end of creating this collection, be able to turn those garments into recycled and recyclable materials. So that's what we said about mm. doing with Sabina um, and are you you're currently working on that right now? We you? are, yeah. we are. We've so we have about I think two more weeks to go before um, we submit our final report to the EU um, to where sustain. It's part of the Horizon Twenty Twenty mm -hmm. funding. Uh, so we have two more weeks to go. We just finished our our sort of final report yesterday with our findings from the chemical research that we've done mm -hmm. um, here in London. Um, so yeah, it's 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 sort of the first phase mm. of our collaboration, I guess, is is finishing. Have you found out like what the funding's going to happen? EU funding means a lot to us, right? It does. <laughs> it meant it, it means an immense amount to us. It's so it's hard to articulate. Some as someone who's worked in the NHS, sort of on and off throughout my career, the importance of the scientific community being unified across Europe 
and focusing its energy and resources makes so much sense. You know, the, the advancements that can be make mm. made um, by working together are just so much stronger. You know, it makes perfect sense to be splintered and divided and not using resources in a smart way and sort of duplicating yeah. research and studies is the thought of it is... Yeah, it's such a shame. It doesn't make sense at all. No. From any point of view, I no. don't think. No. Um, just thinking a little bit as well about, so we've, you know, we've discussed your design background, the kind of chemists element and um, so on. Can you talk to us about textiler? Because that's kind of your separate element, which is your journalism mm -hmm. and your speaking and, you know, you kind of, that obviously feeds into all the others, but can you just yeah. tell us how that started and... Like how you managed to do that too. <laughs> yes, textile came about through frustration at one point when I was trying to tell the story of my brand uh, and engage fashion journalists and editors in a conversation about fashion tech and not being able to find anyone who was talking about that. Um, you know, I, I guess... It was quite early on, though, really, wasn't it? You know, it, yeah. it was, yeah. I guess it was it was around three years ago, mm. um, which is, I suppose, still early on mm. in terms of presenting commercial fashion yes. with that yeah. conversation. Mm. Um, but I was I was looking for someone who might be able to sort of sit down and discuss with me the technical and the aesthetic elements mm. of what I was doing and, and try to promote my work that way. And I just that person just didn't exist. And it was actually my husband, Moyne, who said, you know what, that of course there are not very many people out there who have the sort of the scientific and the fashion understanding. You should you. step into yeah. this space. You yeah. should have these conversations. Yeah. This is an emerging area. And the benefit you can you can bring because you understand both sides is mm -hmm. is, you know, it's really worth sharing. So that's how Textiler started. And Around the same time, actually just shortly before that, the Huffington Post had approached me and asked me to to write for them about what I do and about fashion, fashion and technology. So I suppose the two things combined spurred me on to kind of find more stories, mm. find more examples of what people were doing in this area and I guess be a spokesperson yeah. in a way and try to foster a little bit more of a, a willingness to converse between the scientific and fashion communities mm -hmm. and maybe um, help with a bit more mutual understanding because mm -hmm. sometimes the different sectors speak very different languages and it's quite difficult on the collaborative side. Mm. And so yeah, yeah, and to get everyone together in the same room. Um, sure. Yeah, and that's yeah. kind of happening a lot more now, though, isn't it, with different it events. And, you yeah. know, we're seeing fashion bloggers with someone that's very tech-based and the worlds are sort of merging a little bit more, which is great. Sure, um, yeah. Also, the I know you've done a lot of work or, or know very well um, the F Fashion Innovation Agency, Matthew Drinkwater, and yes. also work with uh, CFE at London. Um, can you just yeah. explain your relationship there and kind of, you know, how how that all, you know, the scene's quite small, really. <laughs> it is quite small. There are not many, um, many sort of agencies or um, 
institutions focusing on on fashion tech but fashion the fashion innovation agency is is probably the key the key one um i've known matthew for some time uh, partly because the industry is so small matthew and i have ended up speaking on panels and at london tech week and uh, I take a, a big interest in what the Fashion Innovate Innovation Agency is doing because they're bringing technology companies together with designers and commercial fashion companies to try to propose new ways of creating, presenting and selling fashion. So they're, they're again, fostering these sort of new, mm. new ways um, of approaching the industry for the greater good um, – whether that be to help an emerging designer to present in a digital form that will sort of shoot shoot their their product into the spotlight or whether it's to try to devise a new way of of creating a fashion experience for for fashion week um to engage customers and the press they're really um trying to push the boundaries of how we view fashion um so i i work with them in terms of covering the events um and the collaborations that they do same for the cfe um i'm always speaking to them about which new you know brands or companies are engaging with them uh, especially on the fashion tech and sustainability side and i try to latch on to those new ideas and then share them on textiler um and also through the huffington post so i guess your initial frustration of people slightly being disbelief in your um you know radiography inspired knitwear mm. you've now completely turned that around and you're being the voice and kind of support and the community building for the other people which yeah you've kind of carved that out and sort of pushing like a you know a big PR and community sort of, of way um I guess that's a really nice way yeah. of thinking <laughs> about it I haven't actually reflected yeah. on it in that way before um but it's true that that's what I am mm. trying ultimately yeah. what I'm trying to do is yeah, m- make sure that there are, those conversations are happening mm. and that people are hearing about them mm. um and to try to support people who are experimenting mm. because it's very difficult as a fashion designer with a brand to do things differently there's a very established framework um you know within the way that fashion business is done mm-hmm. the way that fashion's presented and it's a significant uh, strain on emerging designers financially to follow that method and it doesn't always guarantee success success not that success should be guaranteed. I mean, of course it shouldn't. It, it's something we work for, we learn, we develop, we grow, we change our strategy. But there's a fundamental shift in the fashion industry and technology can help emerging designers to have a better chance mm. of success if they can harness these mm. new technologies. There was a quote that I that I read on your Instagram, actually, that was something about social media and tech enabling democracy. Um, and I thought mm-hmm. that was just, like, really clever because, you know, it, it the fashion system is very rigid, actually. And, you know, with with the convergence of media, we, we are enabling that conversation to happen and perhaps change. And, you know, people are trying different methods and showing off-season and kind of just presenting something different. So mm. can I just get your views on that kind of the 
change or the devolution of it. <laughs> sure. I Yeah, I think that's actually one of the most exciting things that's happened to the fashion industry mm. in recent years is the opening up of fashion shows, of presentations mm. and the the access to social media, which doesn't cost anything really and gives designers a, a platform to the whole world. Mm. It's possible to be a, an emerging global designer mm. if you use Instagram in the right way. Mm. So that's where the democratic element comes in. It's There's no longer the same gatekeepers there are, there are no longer the same barriers to having people see your product. Mm. You know, it, you can, as an emerging designer, you can take control of that. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. You know, as someone who launched a, a brand under very challenging circumstances in a recession mm. using brain scans, <laughs> being able to tell your story and connect directly with your customers mm. and sell directly to them through mm. Insta stories, for example... I find incredibly exciting and I think it it gives young designers a, a really a great opportunity um, to you know be masters of their own destiny mm. to really grab hold of their brands and take them where they want them mm. to go find their customer find their community mm. carve it out have a direct conversation with them and really really understand and know what that community needs and wants as sure. a product not just you know release it into the ether without any connection of the yeah. end user really absolutely but it takes a it takes a humble designer in a way it takes it needs a, a belief in the democratic approach mm. it's not simply about using that platform it's about believing that it's valid to have that conversation directly with your customer mm. and that it's okay to create commercial product for those customers outside of what might be considered the usual credible fashion route you know mm. there is a tension there it, it's it, there are so many nuances in in being a fashion designer that's trained in London, there's so many things you learn, so many things you're kind of schooled in, and and the kind of being hierarchy. And, yeah, yeah. Hi yes, exactly <laughs> hierarchy, but also, you know, having the right people see your work mm. and having um, that sort of um, that validation mm. from the right people and being in the right publications. There's a there's a very strong sense of that. Um, when you're mm. when you're training, when you're studying, that mm. you become very aware of it. So so breaking out of that and doing a more democratic um, way of presenting or taking a democratic approach and sort of having the confidence actually to step, you know, into that that sort Different of area. area yeah. It's it's quite a big thing. Um, it's it can be quite scary, um, I think, for a lot mm. of designers, but. It is really then about taking charge and, and being commercial and selling and knowing what your customer wants and making product for them. And I think the know. irony is when people do, you know, take the jump and, and go at solo sort of thing and have their own space, this mm. fashion community does recognise it. Yeah. <laughs> and they kind of like are allowed back into the fold. You know, it's kind of quite strange that relationship once they've blown up in their own area they're mm. like oh yeah that guy's luxury streetwear that's great we'll have him back yeah yeah, yeah. You know? it can go like that there's definitely a challenge between balancing um those aspects of running a fashion brand and having the right sort of support behind you in the media but also creating the right product 
and being able to price it and sell it and sort of not being derailed mm. in that process by chasing certain, you know, um, certain media coverage mm. maybe, you know. For example, having a show at on schedule at Fashion Week is, is incredibly expensive. It's very difficult as an emerging designer to then sell enough product to make that mm. a viable business model. So it's that tension of mm. wanting to be able to kind of have that platform but then also realistically trying to manage the business aspects mm. of, of the consequences of spending so much money on a show. So Yeah, and, and difficult. Put, putting that into your cost of a garment, literally. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. kind of doesn't really make sense in a lot of ways. That's financially, right. Financially, anyway. That's right, yeah. Um, I know you've recently done your Slave Master at the V&A. Mm. Yeah. Um, that was something that, you know, was kind of really exciting it's art based it's kind of movement dance and everything mm. and kind of obviously very robotic and tech and not necessarily that fashion mm. kind of uh, related could you just talk us about how that came about and and you know what what it is and also what what it's led to next or if there is anything next development from that yeah sure so slave master was something that we did as part of our innovation agency as a standalone project um, and it came about through curiosity, really, and a lot of conversations that Moyne and I have uh, with different industries, because when you develop new materials in the way we do, you touch the medical industry, um, aeronautical, you know, aeronautics, um, interiors, fashion, because materials are for, for, you know, use across different sectors, obviously. So we started to think about how robotics was influencing some of the industries we were working with. And we've been doing some experimentation, as I said, with conductive yarns, which can be worn um, by humans and data can be collected from those. And that data can be used for robotics programming, for example. So we can capture data from human muscle movement and then teach that movement to robots so that they can be softer, mm. less dangerous, um, because we're moving towards uh, in manufacturing uh, cobots, so the use of, of robotics alongside of humans, mm -hmm. um, which is a sort of a relatively new area that moves away from the big industrial arms that are caged. So we know that as industry evolves and as consumer demand for products evolves we all have so many gadgets they have to be made in part by robots because the, the parts are so fine and the work is so dangerous and repetitive that it's not really fit for humans so we know we need robotics there but how do we make those robots safe so our textiles developments are touching on how we start to make inroads into, into that so we were just really talking about our involvement with robotics, our interest in robotics, and also the kind of public perception. Hmm. Because when we started to talk about our work, people would go, robots, ah, that's like terrifying. Coming like, to get us, yeah. It can't be a good thing. It's they're replacing humans. And and we so thought, well, this is the definitely a perspective that comes from sci-fi films. It's something that is quite um it's a sort of one-sided view that the public's presented um, through very sort of narrow eyes. So we became interested in working with some companies that are working with cobots and developing cobots and coming up with a creative installation to generate a new dialogue with the public um, and maybe show them what robotics looks like. Mm. Um, what does a 
cobot look like? What can it do? Um, we've we've done a lot of work in the past, you know, in in terms of I've presented my collections through dance, through film. Um, I've done installations in the past of my work. I've I curated the launch of London Technology Week and brought together a whole load of fashion tech innovations for that. So it felt like another creative project we could do, again, to keep this conversation going in, in the industry and maybe help us to understand a little bit more how our work might influence robotics in the future, our materials work. So we we had this sort of harebrained idea that we would install robots and dancers in the vna and create this narrative around how humans and robots can work together and how robots might be creative um, as well as simply sort of industrial and effective machines um so slave master became a huge project with around i think 12 collaborators in the end um where we sort of moin and i realized our concept through working with robotics engineers, um, um, software developers, um, graphic designers um, from Holition, uh, dancers from the London Contemporary Ballet Theatre, um, which is now the International Arts Collective, um, a composer, Rupert Cross, who did the score for us, um, an artist who built our set, <laughs> um, Delphi Automation, who do incredible sort of installation of robots. It, it, it just grew and it grew. It just grew and grew. <laughs> yeah. It just it became a yeah. really big project where technologists, roboticists, mm. software engineers, um, you know, artists, designers all had to work together to realise this four-minute story about dancers interacting with robots and how we could maybe flip the narrative mm. and how we could oppress robots as humans um, in a sort of cobot mm. scenario because cobots are receptive to humans and they respond to humans and they stop mm. um, when a human's near them. So, we yeah, we, we sort of flipped that narrative um, through the installation, which ran for London Design Festival for 10 days at the V&A. Um, so very kind of um, experimental, um, challenging piece. How did you feel it was received? Well, it was it was received in a, in a mixture of ways actually, and we we set up a chatbot as part of the ten day experience. So we we collected a lot of feedback from the public. It was really interesting to see people's responses and to speak to them. Mm. Uh, it engaged the public in a way that we hadn't quite expected. Mm. There was a lot of sort of, of debate, um, a lot of interest, a lot of fear, um, and a lot of misconception. Um, children. And sort of teens were very receptive to the idea because they're natural. Mm. They have a natural affiliation with technology and a, and a sort of lack of fear around it. Um, it was sort of the older generations who were very, very fearful um, and perhaps less likely to want to discuss any sort of merits of robotics uh, because of their belief in, in them just being bad news um and not really probably in the way that also they don't the people we spoke to maybe didn't have the same interest in um gadgets and technologies so do you, do you think that perhaps the older generations see sort of the technology revolution as potentially 
stopping people working so taking away jobs mm. and things mm. like that and you know the older generation and you know was have seen jobs go rapidly yeah. and you know I'm from up north so I've seen all the steel work and all that kind of stuff yeah. so it's like that fear has been rooted in historical events mm. so I think you know partially what you do mm. as well is kind of re-education and and saying that let's not fear it let's embrace it and use it for our good and we can still have jobs but yeah. <laughs> you know um, that fear does come from a genuine place a lot of the time. Absolutely. I think it does, and it comes from um, from that uh, that experience, that sort of life experience and seeing the way that robots are presented in the media. Um, I think it's the, the, the most important thing actually about understanding robotics more and understanding their place in our world is knowing how there are certain limitations we have as humans um, it's really hard to admit we're fallible, but we really are. <laughs> um, limitations we have and also sort of unsafe situations mm. and sort of mass manufacturing and what that means for large numbers of the population who are sort of working in unsafe um, sort of conditions for very long hours, yeah, doing like very put, repetitive tiny jobs. tiny screws into a phone or something for yes, like exactly. 12 hours a day. Exactly, yeah, yeah. so... It's, it's a there's a big discussion to be had about how um, how we as a as a society are then immobilized to to really harness our creativity and those aspects that we have as humans that are so unique to us and you know moving into those sectors and the evolution of a whole new workforce um, that works on I guess um, driving where robotics will go from a sort of computational mm. standpoint and software development standpoint mm. um so there's a big shift i guess that needs to happen for us um in society um and the role that we play um so that we do obviously still have you know we still have a function you know we need to decide what that's going to be what that looks like um but i think a, a sort of a, a complete dismissal of robotics and and in this case cobots is is nonsensical because they're already um they're already yeah in in prevalent use yeah 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 Yeah. um just uh, something a bit lighter Mm, (laughs) um how do you manage to do it all work-life balance you know you work with your husband as well Mm -hmm. so you know you Mm -hmm. see him here and at home and yeah um i know you're just about to go on maternity leave so Mm. things will have to be adjusted again Mm. um how do you manage to do it all just amazing amounts of energy do you eat amazing food (laughs) like what no i don't have any secrets like that i'm not a sort of super healthy person that eats like super foods all the time (laughs) or anything um i i'm an incredibly ambitious person i think it just comes from a place of being driven to be honest Mm. um and curious and wanting to try Mm. things you know I've always I've always had that sort of right from the beginning where I you know as a radiographer and I know I I wanted I definitely want to do fashion I you know I I really want to do tailoring want to do something you know interesting and creative but technical I just I suppose I have these ideas and I I have these visions for what I can achieve and then I just set about achieving them um I really like to push myself I like to learn. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's really important that kind of continual yeah inspiring yourself and like pushing yourself and kind of yeah absolutely surrounding yourself with people like that as well it's yeah. Really yeah it's really nice actually to be feeling like there's so much that you don't know mm. and it's such a powerful thing to combine knowledge in different areas mm-hmm. and apply it in a way that it hasn't been applied before for example working as you know from the perspective of a knitwear designer using certain materials that can then be dissolved into new sustainable packaging, being able to work with the right chemists and the right technicians and bringing my knitwear design element and also my scientific understanding and my affinity for the sciences, it sort of creates these really dynamic opportunities. Um, And that's what I find really um, interesting and exciting and I feel like I can do things that uh, are useful um, mm. and beneficial and that matter, you know. I guess that's where way back, you know, I, when I became a radiographer, I wanted to do something that was that was useful, that, mm. that had an impact. And I suppose that didn't give the creative stimulation mm. and fulfilment that I needed. So I'm sort of in some way mm. now trying Combine. to juggle all these mm. things so that I, I can... Um, have an impact and feel fulfilled and um hopefully do something that's of interest Mm. you know and and that helps on the sustainability Mm. and the and the fashion side to sort of drive the industry forward in some way yeah well i'm sure (laughs) i know you're doing that so i hope so (laughs) amazing thank you thanks Waybrook approaches her work with no barriers through exploration to innovation is something we can all learn from. Sometimes we are searching so hard to find the right direction or solution to our business or design problems and coming to a dead end because of it, because we are expecting the solution to look in a certain way. But by giving ourselves the space to be free, take time out to explore and remember what it's like to be free of preconceived ideas, perhaps with a fresh childlike naivety, we may well be blown away by what we are capable of. Till next time, be sure to join the conversation via Instagram at Black Neon Digital, Twitter at Digital Neon, and online at blackneondigital.com.